Our scripture reading is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and our text, the verses 21 through 23. So Colossians chapter 1. beginning at verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy, and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. So I figured it was time to get back to the Colossians series that we were working on before the pandemic. I will preach another sermon or two on Psalm 23 in the mornings, and I'm not sure. There may be other sermons as we go along applying the Word of God to our situation as things develop and change, but we're at a point, I think, where not every sermon has to address the pandemic directly. There is a sense in which the gospel message addresses every situation in that it deals with the things of greatest importance, whether we are in relatively easy times or whether we are in more difficult times. And so this evening we'll deal with these verses 21 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1. Now in the last, in the last two sermons on Colossians 1, we dealt with the first part of what we read tonight, the 15 through 20, which are all about Jesus and his role in creation and in the new creation. That passage describes the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the most striking way. Jesus Christ is the one through whom God created all things and by whom all things hold together. And then it is through Jesus that God is pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. The thrust of these verses is that Jesus is preeminent 
in all things, both in creation and in new creation. There are no words to adequately describe how great and exalted Jesus is. The scope of the renewal that God is working on through him is similarly breathtaking. This is the big picture context for our lives. Jesus is preeminent, and what he is working toward is the renewal of the whole creation. This is a glorious hope as we consider how broken the creation is because of sin and how sinful human sinfulness continues to work its destruction both in society and on the non-human parts of the creation. What a comfort it is to know that Jesus Christ, who created all things, is working toward the renewal of all things. The history of the world is not moving towards the disintegration that is the inevitable harvest of sin, but rather God in Christ has broken the power of sin and death, and he is working toward their eventual eradication. In the end, God and man and the rest of the creation will dwell together in harmony, and the wonder of that is beyond what we can now imagine. So verses 15 through 20 describe the Jesus-dominating and cosmic context of our lives. It is a very big and glorious picture. And the verses that we're going to look at this evening describe how believers, how we fit into the big picture that verses 15 through 20 describe. That's the significance of the first two words in verse 21. So first you have this exalted description of the cosmic reconciliation that God in Christ is achieving. And then Paul continues and he says, and you. Now he's going to describe how the Colossians fit into the glorious picture of cosmic renewal that he has just painted. And it has to do with reconciling them to God. In verse 20, he speaks of God in Christ reconciling all things to himself. And in verse 21, he narrows his focus and speaks about how God in Christ has reconciled the Colossians to himself. Now, shortly after the beginning, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And that sin had consequences for the whole creation. Through what Jesus accomplished on the cross, sinners are reconciled to God. And that also has consequences for the whole of the creation. Now, the whole of the creation is a very big thing. When Jesus, when, when David in Psalm 8 considered the vastness of the heavens, he he felt very, very small. Verse 8, verse 4 says, Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, God has given the human race a very significant role in his creation, so that man's sin 
resulted in the fall of a whole creation, and man's salvation is connected with the renewal of the whole creation. It's important that we understand that God is infinitely greater than we are, that we do not exist for ourselves, that we exist for him. But on the other hand, we must also understand that God has given humanity an incredibly significant role in his creation. We see that how the fall into sin had disastrous consequences for the whole of creation, and now how our salvation from sin is related to the renewal of all things. The most important thing in all the creation is the relationship of humanity with God. The human race, serving and worshiping God, is at the center of what the whole creation is all about. And that's the significance between the relationship between the glorious picture described in verses 15 through 20 and the description of the salvation of sinners in verses 21 through 23. The way to the reconciliation of all things on earth and in heaven is through the reconciliation of sinners to God. The salvation of sinners through what Jesus accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection is at the heart of the renewal of the entire creation. Well, Paul begins where the, where the Colossians were <coughs> before they were reconciled to God <coughs> through the gospel message. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. So that's how Paul describes the Colossians before they were changed by the gospel. And this is how the Bible describes all people who are not reconciled to God through salvation in Jesus Christ. Apart from salvation, we are all alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, in many cases, this is obvious. There are many people in the world who detest God, who detest God's people, but there are also many who might be described as apathetic. They don't feel hostile to God. They just don't think about him very much at all. They just don't care. But the Bible describes that as hostility to God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. So that text tells us that not submitting to God's law is hostility to God. And that makes sense when you think of it. God is God. He is our creator. He, is, he has the right to tell us how to live. He has done that by giving us his law. Not obeying that law is an act of rebellion and thus also an act of hostility. And in many instances, that hostility may come more to the surface if God's claims upon people's lives are pressed upon them. Failure to submit to God by keeping his law is an expression of hostility. But what about us? We're in a different situation 
than the Colossians were before their conversion. They were converted out of paganism. Most of us have been raised as covenant children. Now, many of us can remember a time when we were unconverted, even as covenant children. We took part in church life because we had to, but our hearts were not in it, and we were not interested in keeping God's law or serving him. And if that has been your experience, if that is your past, then you can easily identify with Paul's description of the Colossians before they were converted, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But there may be some among us, and there may be some among us who are still in that condition. Outwardly, we may comply with expectations, but in reality, we are still hostile to God. And that, of course, is not a good place to be. But within the covenant people of God, there are also those who cannot remember a time when they were hostile to God. And we often pray that our little ones may grow up and never know a time when they did not believe in Jesus, when they may never know a time when they wanted to please Jesus. That's what we pray for. That's what we hope for, for all our covenant children. And if that happens, they will not be aware of a time when they were alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And the fact is that this is how God often works in covenant children. Psalm 78, 1 through 8, describes a situation in which fathers teach their children God's word from their earliest days, quote, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Psalm 20, or Proverbs 22, 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now we know that that, that text, that is not a promise. A proverb is certainly not a promise. It's an observation of what happens, generally speaking. But what it's saying then is that, generally speaking, when a child is trained, in the way that he should go, he will not depart from it when it is when he is old. And we know that to be so. From thankfully observing it happening many, many times. How are we to think of covenant children who are not aware of a time when they were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds? Well, there are two things that must be said about this. The one is that we are all conceived and born in sin. We are all conceived with sinful natures. We are all conceived as sinners. Romans 5.18 teaches that one trespass, that's Adam's sin, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. David in Psalm 51.5 writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Ephesians 2, 3 says that all of mankind are by nature children of wrath. So even if we can't remember a time when we were hostile to God, we share, we share the sinful nature that all people inherit from Adam so that we all need to be saved. That salvation may happen when we are very young, and often it does. But we are all sinners by nature. 
and we need to be saved by believing in Jesus. Second, even if we do not remember a time when we were not trusting in Jesus and seeking to please him, all true believers are given to see something of the evil of their sinful nature that remains and the sins they commit. In Romans 7, after Paul describes his struggle with sin in his life, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's speaking as a believer, and he is very aware of the evil that remains in him. And that's the experience of all believers. When we see our own sin for what it is, and we see that there is an aspect of hostility to God in all sin. And so we have some sense of the great evil that we are saved from. It's not biblically accurate to say that believers in Jesus are now alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, but because of the knowledge of the sinfulness of sin that comes with salvation, we understand that this is what we are saved from. And because we still sin, we have a pretty good sense of that hostility to God. We're not completely free from it because we are not completely free from sin. And so we see in Paul's description of the Colossians before their conversion, a description of what we are all like by nature and what we are being saved from. Next, Paul speaks of salvation using the imagery of reconciliation. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death. So if we are saved people, we have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, the reconciliation that is in the foreground here is the reconciliation of the Colossians to God. Before, Paul says, they were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. They were not reconciled to God. But now, that's no longer the case. Their attitude towards God has been changed. They are no longer hostile to God. They now submit to him. They now trust in Jesus. They are now seeking to please God. So from their side, they are reconciled to God. And Paul here is speaking about a profound inner and outer change that has happened in the lives of the Colossians. Reconciliation involves a deep-seated change in attitude toward God. And that change happens by the power of God. Verse 22 speaks of the reconciliation as something that God has done. God in Christ has reconciled believers to himself. And the result of that is that the Colossians are no longer alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. But this reconciliation that Paul is talking about here also includes God being reconciled towards sinners. Before people are saved, God is not reconciled towards them. 
Unsaved sinners are guilty before God. They are under his wrath. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says of believers that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So there are two sides to reconciliation. We are reconciled to God and God is reconciled to us. And so there is peace between God and his people. (coughs) The relationship is restored. The the, The hostility is removed. Instead of alienation, there is harmony and love. The barrier between God and his people is taken away. The barrier is both the guilt of our sin, but also our inner rejection, our inner attitude of rejection of God as our God. The guilt is taken away in forgiveness. Our inner hostility to God is removed by the change that God works in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so God adopts us as his children, and we love and trust him as our Father. It's a beautiful thing. This is at the very heart of goodness. In the biblical worldview, a loving relationship between God and humans is at the center of life and blessing. It belongs to the very purpose of the creation. It's pleasing to God. It's fullness of life for human beings. We're created for this relationship, and it is this relationship that salvation restores. God and sinners reconciled joy to the world. But it happens by means of the death of Christ. Paul says in our text that Jesus has reconciled the Colossians to himself in his body of flesh by his death. Now Paul probably uses the phrase body of his death to emphasize the fact that Jesus was a true flesh and blood human being because there have always been false teachers on the fringes of the church who have taught that Jesus only looked like a human being, uh, but that he was not truly flesh and blood. But Jesus was a true human being as well as being fully God. And being a true human being made it possible for him to die. And it was the death of Christ, Paul is saying here, is by that that we are reconciled to God. Paul expresses the same point in Romans 5.10, where he says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Being reconciled to God is at the heart of all that is good for human beings. And the death of Christ is how that wonderful reconciliation was accomplished. The death of Christ is a, a great expression of the love of God. Verse 21 of our text reminds us, how personal sin is. Apart from salvation, we're alienated from God. That's personal language. We're hostile towards God. We flout his authority by doing evil deeds. If we think of the fact that God made us, that his intentions for us were always good, and that rebelling against God is such a terrible insult to God, it's a great wonder that God does not just give us all what we deserved. And yet, what do we read? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 3.16. 
Jesus, according to Revelation 1.5, is one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus gave himself for our sins, according to Galatians 1.4. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, according to Ephesians 5.2. This is indeed amazing grace, and it is reason for joy and celebration and praise and thanksgiving, as well as lives that express thanksgiving. <clears throat> and the next part of the sentence gives us a sense of how wonderful this is. Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Words like these in the Bible are there to give us an incredible sense of peace and joy and satisfaction and security. If the most important thing in our lives are our relationships with God, if the worst possible thing in life is the wrath of God upon us because of our sin. What Paul describes in these words is the most exhilarating blessing imaginable. Jesus, on the basis of what he accomplished by his death, presents us to God as holy, as blameless, and as above reproach. That's hard to imagine. That's challenging to believe when we realize how awful our sin is and how, dishonor, how dishonoring it is to God. But this is the good news, and it is true of all who trust in Jesus. If you are trusting in Jesus, Jesus presents you to God as holy, as blameless, and as above reproach. And living with that, in that awareness belongs to healthy Christian experience. Paul is writing to the Colossian church and through them to the whole church. He's not writing to some kind of super-Christians who were so sanctified that they hardly needed saving. There are no such people. But this is written to people who were once alienated and hostile to God doing evil deeds. And the reason that they are now presented to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach is not because of anything that they have achieved, it is all because Jesus was and is holy and blameless and above reproach, and that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and placed his perfect record of obedience on our account. This is reason for us to live with deep joy and peace and with a deep sense of being valued. When God thinks of us, he is pleased. 
He is very satisfied with us because we are holy and blameless and above reproach in Christ. That in spite of the fact that there is still a lot of sin in our lives, that is the glory of the gospel because of Jesus and what he has done for us by dying on the cross, Jesus presents us to God as holy and blameless and above reproach. And knowing that helps a lot for our psychological well-being. Our greatest need is acceptance with God. Our greatest psychological need is to know that God loves us and that he is pleased with us. And that's what Paul is saying here. If we are trusting in Jesus, Jesus presents us to God as holy and as blameless and above reproach. And that means that it is well with our souls. But there is a but. This state of being holy, blameless, and above reproach is conditional on continuing in the faith. Verse 23 begins with the word if. And the word if introduces a condition. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So in order to be holy and blameless and above reproach, we must continue in the faith. We must be stable and steadfast. We must not shift from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. Now, this does not mean that truly saved people can fall away from the Lord. If someone is elect, if someone has been born again, if someone has been given saving faith and genuine repentance, they can never fall away from the Lord. Jesus keeps his sheep. No one will be able to pluck them out of his hands. Paul in Philippians 1.6 says to the Philippians, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Praise God that those who are truly saved will be kept by Jesus right to the end. But we know that some people who think they are saved fall away. And the Bible not infrequently warns of the possibility of falling away from the Lord. And we must take both of these scriptural truths seriously. As long as we are continuing in the faith, we can take great comfort in the fact that God will keep his own to the end, that he will never let them fall away. But that truth may not foster complacency. If we are not continuing in the faith, if we are shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, we had better take these warnings seriously. The reality is the result of God keeping his own is that they continue in the faith. Now this is a wonderful thing about scripture. 
There are these many of these pairs of truths in the Bible that seem to be in tension with one another, and yet we need them both. And they are both of great practical importance, and so it is here. God says that true believers will never fall away. God tells us in this passage that we will only be holy and blameless and above reproach before him if we continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Both of those truths are utterly essential for our spiritual well-being. If we are continuing in the faith, it is a great comfort to know that God will keep us to the end. If we are drifting away and shifting from the hope of the gospel, we had better face up to the fact that we are in grave danger of falling away. And the consequences of that are eternally catastrophic. One of the best evidences of salvation is continuing in the faith over the long haul. We know that it is much easier to begin something than it is to keep at it, especially when that something is hard and takes continual effort. The Christian life takes perseverance. It takes stick-to-itiveness. Being stable and steadfast means not being swayed in the temptations and the headwinds of the Christian life. We know that if it happens, it's because of God's grace. But God's grace results in our continuing and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Paul's words in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 express this perfectly. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So all that Paul has said about the wonder of being holy and blameless and above reproach in Christ is gloriously true. This is the good news of the gospel that the Colossians had heard and responded to. They should rejoice in that and be encouraged and motivated to live lives that are pleasing to God. Indeed, they should be encouraged by these wonderful truths to persevere in them. One of the things in the background here is false teachers who are active in the Colossian congregation, as they were in so many other congregations. And Paul is urging the Colossians to continue in the faith and not to shift from the hope of the gospel that had been preached to them. That same gospel has been preached to us. We have it in our Bibles, and it is a glorious message indeed. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, has described aspects of the gospel in some of the most wonderful words of the Bible and God's goal for us in preserving this letter as part of his word is the same as Paul's goal for the Colossians, that we might continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. That gospel has been proclaimed throughout the world. It has come through time to us. It is the best possible news for our lives in this age and in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your glorious gospel. 
We thank you for your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the incredible contrast between what we are by nature and what we deserve and what we receive. And we thank you for the greatness of your love and the love of Christ in bringing about the salvation that brings us from lost sinners to saved children of God, loved and beloved, viewed as holy, blameless, and above reproach. We pray that these truths may sink into our minds and our souls, that they may that they may motivate us in our living, that we may live close to you by thinking and living with these thoughts and similar thoughts in our minds. And we pray that that continual that continual application of your word to us may indeed preserve us and enable us to be steadfast, to be faithful over the long haul, and to hold on to the hope of the gospel that has been preached to us. In Jesus' name, amen.